Hello and welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I am your host, Allison R. Brown, Executive Director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, or CJSF. We provide resources to community-based organizations that are working to ensure equity in their schools. Visit www.cjsfund.org to subscribe to our e-newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtags C4JS, that's the number four, or Communities for Just Schools, again, the number four. On Schoolhouse today, we are talking with prominent author, researcher, activist, and really just incredible human being, Dr. Monique Morris. Dr. Morris is the co-founder and president of the National Black Women's Justice Initiative. She has more than 20 years experience in education, civil rights, and juvenile and social justice. She's a prolific author, having written several books, including Black Stats, African Americans by the Numbers in the 21st Century. She's also written two beautiful for words, and her most recent book is Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. You can follow Dr. Morris on Twitter at Monique W. Morris. Monique, thank you so much for being with us on Schoolhouse today. Thank you for having me. I just want to start by setting the backdrop for the conversation. And, you know, there's so much in the news lately about children, mostly children of color, being arrested out of school and often for things that you and I could not be arrested for in the streets, Monique. And we all, of course, heard the story about Ahmed Mohammed, who was arrested last year for his science project, which was a clock that he'd built at home and that educators then assumed was a bomb. That story received international attention. Lately, so much of the video and the news stories are about young girls of color being mistreated. 13-year-old Denesia Neal in Texas was detained by police in school for using a $2 bill to buy her lunch. The police thought that was a fake bill. 15-year-old Jaquela Johnson was arrested in North Carolina in school for possession of marijuana, even though she did not actually possess marijuana. She was detained for smelling like marijuana, which, by the way, in certain parts of the country has become a legal uh, drug of, of recreation for certain populations. 12-year-old Janissa Valdez was body slammed by a school resource officer landing hard on her face on the concrete sidewalk and then arrested for maybe almost kind of getting into a fight. A 16-year-old black female student was brutally snatched from her desk and dragged across the floor by a school resource officer before being arrested for not giving up her cell phone to the teacher when he asked her to. So I could go on and on, of course, but I will stop there and say that, Monique, your recent book, Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools, really helps to set the historical and racial context for these incidents that we keep seeing. And I wonder if you would just talk a little bit about your book, Push Out, and how these incidents are actually situated in a broader framework. You know, as I'm listening to you talk, I can imagine each of these cases, and I see the faces of girls that I've uh, interacted with over the years in discussing these issues, and I remain concerned and yet also very encouraged by the fact that we are now talking about these incidents Mm -hmm. and really beginning to see them beyond just unique cases that occur in specific communities without any clear way to link them. 
as a growing narrative about the conditions in our schools and the ways in which we respond to the behaviors of girls of color, particularly black girls. So in Push Out, I talk about cases like those that you named, uh, including some that you name, and really begin to think about how we have constructed um, our educational spaces such that we no longer have placed a primary emphasis on learning. Instead, we have uh, really developed a culture that prioritizes discipline and criminalization. And it's something that has uniquely impacted black girls, given the histories of violence and victimization, of historical neglect, and um, ways in which we uh, have very limited differential resources in communities, schools, uh, communities and schools, rather, that serve a disproportionately high number of black girls, schools that tend to be high-poverty, low-performing schools, schools that tend to have zero-tolerance policies, and schools that tend to read the behaviors of black girls as uh, uniquely problematic and worthy of really harsh discipline, strong uh, enforcement, and in many ways, harmful engagement. So in the book, I talk a lot about unique cases, but I also try to present you know, this historical perspective on the importance of educating black girls and the way in which it has shaped the landscape and trajectory of opportunity for black women. Mm-hmm. And you know, the basic idea that education is a critical protective factor against contact with the juvenile and criminal legal system system, and yet there are so many ways that we are pushing black girls out of school, uh, rendering them increasingly vulnerable to criminalization. I started this project by thinking about things on the back end. I spent several years doing criminal and juvenile justice research. And in the space around criminal and juvenile legal system involvement and girls, you know, what we know is that while the percentage of youth of a boys, you know, has declined or the the rate of contact has declined among boys for contact with the juvenile legal system, the rate has actually increased for girls increased. <laughs> in the same. Yeah. And while they represent a small proportion of the population that is incarcerated, um, you know, about 80 percent are male. When we broaden the scope of inquiry to really examine this issue of criminalization, we begin to see the various institutions and practices and prevailing consciousness that render girls vulnerable to contact with this legal system as well. It may not look like incarceration per se, but it's equally debilitating and reflective of an idea that really stagnates opportunity and segregates opportunity in this country. And so that's what I wanted to center, and I wanted to situate those conversations about what's happening in schools in this greater context of how we develop a more robust investment and framework to better understand how girls, particularly black girls, are being impacted by our inability to understand who they are and what their contributions could be. You know, with this notion of education as a protective factor, that's so critical. You know, it really is the sauce that we need to be successful and to survive. And so I appreciate your framing it that way as a protective factor. Well, it's interesting because I was just in Birmingham doing some work and I had an opportunity to visit the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. Mm -hmm. And one of the images that I took back with me was this um, image of enslaved black women in the cotton fields, and it was a plaque about education that read, Mm -hmm. you know, something to the effect of how we've 
always understood education to be the tool that can elevate us from these conditions of oppression. And, you know, the primary emphasis, the, the backbone, really, of our freedom work has been the opportunity or been fight to have a quality education. If you are able to think and reason and engage Mm -hmm. and really interrogate, then you can employ the other tools to advance an equity agenda and a justice agenda with meaning. If you don't have those tools, then all you have available to you um, is the fight. And that is what gets people in trouble. (laughs) That's right. And, you know, that education is a protective factor, but that it has been on the agenda, and in many cases, the primary agenda for freedom and liberation and for fighters for justice. You know, that that is where, uh, especially, and you go into this in the book, where Black women, our elders, have really focused, and education has been a key starting point for that. And, you know, you you mentioned some of the momentum that we're seeing now around uh, women and girls of color. And you've focused for so many years on, on black girls and women and girls of color and moving systemic things out of their way so that they can truly achieve greatness. You know, we're seeing the White House. The White House launched an, an initiative recently. Uh, philanthropy is coming together on this. Why is that important and why has it not happened before now? I'm really excited to see the current movement toward, you know, engaging our girls. And I think that for a long time we were participating in sort of an oppression Olympics Mm. where there were competing agendas where it was presented, the discussion about racial justice, the discussion about juvenile justice, criminal justice was framed in such a way that it prevented us from seeing the ways in which all of our communities were harmed by the policies, practices, and consciousness of criminalization. Instead, we were focusing on a very narrow framework that really rendered girls invisible. You know, our framework was largely about, again, incarceration, mass incarceration, which disproportionately impacts males. And so the discussion about violence and victimization in this way, this the impact of state violence or the impact of state-led institutions was really seen only through a lens of men and masculinized engagement with the justice system. Mm. And, you know, our inability to step back and see the reach of the justice system or the reach of the criminal legal system outside of those, you know, spaces, I think provided an emphasis for, or provided, I would say it probably underscored the existing patriarchal lens that informs much of our engagement around activism in this country. And so what we were seeing with girls was that even while their rates were increasing, as I mentioned to you, you know, while the, while the rates for boys were actually decreasing and the rates for girls were increasing because the numbers were still so large for boys, there was this, you know, orientation toward their conditions and a framing around their conditions and a mobilization around their conditions that prioritized their pain over that of their female counterparts. Mm-hmm. For a while, this went on despite many activists, advocates, scholars, you know, trying to enter the space to say, 
wait a minute, our kids are sharing schools, our children along the gender continuum are impacted by violence. How we see that violence, it may not always look like, you know, being shot in the street or it may not always look like being, uh, you know, beaten in public. It may look like an intimate partner violence. It may look like sexual assault. It may look like any number of things that are also violence Mm -hmm. (laughs) and also leading to contact with the criminal and juvenile legal systems. But uh, it took a while for enough of us to gather the data needed um, because data were not readily available. So while we were engaging in conversations and experiencing, you know, narratives that demonstrated this, these were mostly anecdotal because of the structure of how we collect data in this country. It was very difficult to tease out what was happening with girls of color. There's also been, you know, I would say an orientation toward, and I mentioned this earlier, prioritizing oppressions um, and seeing our engagement around racial justice as a zero-sum game, where if we invest in the well-being of males, we cannot simultaneously invest in the well-being of females. And that has been a very deeply problematic structure. Um, And I think that we are now emerging in a space where we can better understand that while we are not participating in an oppression Olympics, right, this is not a competition, um, we, you know, But we do need to recognize the various ways in which communities are impacted by structures of oppression. And that's where we need the investment to really develop a more robust, nuanced framework and set of intervention strategies that are really ultimately about community building and really ultimately about seeing how we all play a role in this work and how we can work together to combat these structures of oppression rather than against each other. That's such a critical point. And uh, for those just joining, we are talking to Dr. Monique Morris of the National Black Women's Justice Initiative, author of Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. I want to just read a passage from your introduction. This is a a paragraph in the section where you talk about historical perspectives on the importance of educating black girls and ask you to talk about how this resonates and how this is relevant for other communities. So long before the Supreme Court handed down its decision in Brown versus Board of Education, black women were clear about the liberative power of education. Under slavery, the education of people of African descent was illegal and considered a punishable offense under state slave codes. In Georgia, enslaved Africans or other free people of color were fined or whipped at the discretion of the court if discovered reading or writing in either written or printed characters. In this society, to read challenged the oppressive controlling logic of slavery and the presupposed inferiority of black people. For many enslaved women, learning to read represented a reclamation of human dignity and provided an opportunity to ground their challenges to the institution in scholarship, literature, and biblical scripture. Many a black woman's commitment to education was so strong that she risked incarceration or other penalties just to attain it. So I I wonder, with that very unique history that your book is situated in and that conversations about black girls and black women are situated in, how is your research relevant for other populations? You know, the narrative of black girl involvement and black woman involvement in advancing an educational equity agenda has benefited already everyone else in this country. 
And, you know, when we look at the role that women played in, you know, the Brown versus Board of Education decisions, we look at how women were consistently engaged in educating communities, even while they were not necessarily the focal point of you know, our most recent um, educational equity agendas, their imprint has always been there. And when we look at, you know, the the struggle for black girls to attain a quality education and for the, you know, their community of caring adults to ensure that they get this education. I think what we're saying ultimately and what I'm saying ultimately is that there are no throwaway children. And if we actually believe that, then we have to address the community that is most disproportionately being pushed out of school and negatively impacted by our existing policies and framework. Black girls are the only group of girls that are overrepresented among all disciplined character or, or they are the only group of girls who are disproportionately overrepresented in all nine discipline categories for which data are collected by the U.S. Department of mm-hmm. Education. And that's problematic <laughs> across the board. Absolutely. Various groups might be overrepresented at, at various stages, but black girls are the only group of girls to be overrepresented across all of them, which tells us that there's an issue. Black girls are still experiencing achievement gap issues. They're still performing on tests in, at rates that uh, require our investment so that they can perform better, even while we interrogate, you know, whether or not standardized tests are valuable in our assessment of student Mm -hmm. performance, there's still a measure of success that we need to engage. And so while we see this consistent pattern of underperformance, of exclusion, of discipline, you know, we have to understand what this is producing in the communities that these girls are from and also how it negatively impacts them in the long run. Black women still experience underemployment and unemployment at higher rates than their white and Asian counterparts. They're still earning less you know, than their counterparts of other racial and ethnic groups and among uh, black men. So it's really important for us to understand what education can provide and how we are systematically excluding girls from that opportunity and how when they do get in trouble, as all kids, you know, might do. That's right. <laughs> that we're not responding to them more harshly than we are to other kids Mm -hmm. or reading their bodies or behaviors in ways that unnecessarily remove them from school or unnecessarily reinforce these negative stereotypes about who we think they'll be so that they do internalize the oppression and cause harm in their own communities and families. Mm -hmm. We, as a community of caring adults and as educators and as advocates and as, you know, the community of philanthropy, if we're really uh, committed to establishing a culture of of equity, of, you know, sort of leading this work in a way that can ultimately, you know, disrupt the pathways to confinement for children and instead produce, you know, the type of infrastructure collaboratives that support, you know, economic and educational well-being, then we have to center what is happening with girls. We have to understand that when we address their conditions, we are ultimately addressing all of those. When we address and interrupt the conditions that facilitate the criminalization of one, we have established that we don't believe in throwaway children, right? And we have established that the education and the quality of resources that are available to our children should be uniform and equal across the board. And when we're examining the systemic factors, the systemic things that contribute to disparity and contribute to practices that allow for, you know, perpetuation of throwaway children, which I 
appreciate how you put that. Sexual orientation and gender identity are really important to talk about. And I'm wondering what you have observed about black girls in schools who identify as lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or gender nonconforming. I have observed that black girls in those spaces absolutely experience a differential treatment that is heinous (laughs) in many spaces and under-theorized, really, in our scholarship and in our approaches to developing responses that can ultimately interrupt school-to-confinement pathways. I include in the book narratives from girls who identify as LGBTQ and who represent a variety of you know, sort of identities, mm-hmm. <laughs> intersectional identities, if you will. And, you know, one of the things that was most prominent to me among the transgender girls who were included in the narratives were the ways in which administrators and adults in their lives failed to recognize that they were not problem children, mm-hmm. but that they were being bullied, mm-hmm. that they were being cast as disruptive just for being And they were judged in a way that I would say impacted their educators' ability to really maximize their full potential. You know, in many cases, there's a girl in the book who I call Paris who um, talks about her own experience transitioning in high school where she says she had to fight to defend herself. Mm -hmm. And she also talks about having to you know, deal with teachers who called her a distraction and didn't want her in school, told her to leave school because she was a distraction, right? I mean, we can't imagine, you know, someone saying that to all of our children, you can't be here because you're a distraction. That is illegal. Yes. <laughs> and, and also, you know, it's certainly, you know, something that no matter how we are participating as individuals in respectability politics should not be allowed in our schools mm-hmm. at all. So these kinds of narratives are rarely told. We kind of assume that there is a differential treatment But, you know, we don't really frame it in the right ways, right? We also, you know, I think for many of the girls, you know, about 40% of girls who are in contact with the juvenile legal system identify as as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. And it's really important for us to understand that that is a very high percentage, it's a disproportionately Mm -hmm. high percentage of girls who are in some form of confinement who are LGBTQ. And when we think about, you know, those who identify as genderqueer or who identify as operating along a sexual continuum uh, in terms of their own identity, you know, that should really have nothing to do with how we engage them as learners and how we engage them as individuals. And yet it does inform because of the biases that adults carry uh, in terms of how we read their behaviors, how we engage them as thinkers, and how we um, interpret the promise of their participation in in schools, you know, as scholars. Mm -hmm. So I include them in this story because I think it's important for us to, when I talk about black girls, you know, I'm not only talking about African-American girls, I'm talking about girls who have intersectional identities that make their engagement complex and that, you know, the adults with, you know, the educators, the adults that they encounter of all racial and ethnic backgrounds are participating in a you know, sort of a casting of their identity in ways that um, are harmful that we need to interrogate. So this is not 
my opportunity to say all teachers are doing X, Y, and Z. And, you know, one of the common questions that I get about this work is, you know, whether I am somehow blaming white women, you know, who are the majority of teachers for the suspensions and disruptions that happen in the education of black girls. And that's not at all what I'm doing. What I am doing, though, is recognizing that, you know, while I believe most teachers become educators because they believe in the promise of children and they, you know, love education and want to be a part of that process for so many, that we're all living with implicit biases that inform how we engage with individuals and how we understand and read the behaviors of the children that we work with. You know, I would like to um, talk also about girls who are commercially sexually exploited. Mm. And I talk a lot about them throughout the book because how we come to understand the risks associated with school pushout also includes a deeper understanding of how we have come to read the behaviors of girls who we cast as hypersexual or who we just fail to see. And there's a way in which the schools have been policing the bodies of black girls through differential dress code enforcement and ways in which schools have failed to recognize and respond to girls who are uniquely vulnerable to sexual victimization and exploitation that I think we need to talk about. You know, like I said, I started this project really when I was doing a lot of juvenile legal system work with girls and in detention facilities and discovering that the vast majority of the girls who were in contact um, with the justice system and who certainly were in confinement um, were girls who had very deeply problematic educational experiences Mm -hmm. and relationships with schools. The majority of the girls that I talked to had early experiences with suspensions and expulsions. Many of them had been expelled multiple times. And when I talked to them about what was leading to this expulsion or these suspensions, it was really, you know, a mixture of um, the inability of the adults in their lives to adequately respond to their victimization, but also the ways in which their exploitation had been criminalized their sexual abuse and victimization had been criminalized. Um, And there was a new report out, you know, the Sexual Abuse to Prison Pipeline that talks a bit about this centrality of sexual victimization in the lives of girls who are in contact with the juvenile legal system. And I think that's an important piece when we're talking about girls. We don't necessarily talk so much about it in the frameworks and, and discussions about boys, though they are also impacted in many ways by this. But I want to, you know, really emphasize that, uh, you know, when we talk about the early priming and, and, and victimization that occurs in the lives of, you know, many black girls, that their engagement with school varies based upon the kinds of interventions that they receive, you know, and so ultimately our inability to deal with that is impacting also their school life and performance. So one of the segments of the book, I talk about a girl who I call Denisha, who described herself as a hoe at 11 years old. And I start the book with her because it's important, I think, for us to understand that when we're talking about girls who are at risk of contact with the juvenile legal system, and we're talking about girls who have experienced school pushout, we are talking about girls who have experienced tremendous victimization that we have not addressed. 
And that's a critical point for us to understand because it informs then what kind of schools we need to build, <laughs> what kind of interventions are most appropriate, how we then can develop partnerships with other agencies to actually address the root causes of these behaviors rather than punish girls and push them out of school, which makes them vulnerable to greater participation in underground economies that can then lead to their contact with the juvenile and criminal legal systems, right? Yeah. And so in this space of exploring my discussion with Denisha, um, I talk about how it haunts me, right? I talk about how the fact that you know, this one girl who was 11 years old, who should have been telling us about, you know, her school work or who should have been in a, in a safe space with somebody that I encountered um, after, you know, being sold and referring to herself in a way that doesn't even recognize or acknowledge the sexual exploitation that she was experiencing. Yeah. And that this is not a unique occurrence. In many of the urban centers, you know, the overwhelming majority of girls who are commercially sexually exploited are black girls. And their faces have not been the face of commercial sexual exploitation or human trafficking. We tend to think about that as a global phenomenon. But when we look at L.A., we look at Oakland, we look at Chicago, New Orleans, you know, we look at these places. These are almost 90 percent black girls who are being trafficked and who are not in school and haven't been in school for three years. And when you talk to them about why they're... I want you to repeat that statistic, Monique. In Los Angeles, in Oakland, in Chicago, in many of our urban centers, over 90% of the girls who are commercially sex trafficked are black girls. Mm. And nationally, the number is lower. But when we're looking at the schools and the districts that produce the greatest level of school discipline, when we're looking at the rates of discipline that disproportionately impact black girls, you know, we start to see a pattern emerge <laughs> that is a real convergence of multiple oppressions impacting the lives of these girls. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about girls acting out in school or we talk about girls who have sassy mouths or we talk about mm -hmm. all of these other ways in which we're, you know, framing the behaviors of girls, we have to acknowledge the presence and centrality of trauma, sexual victimization and trauma, historical victimization and trauma mm -hmm. in the lives of these girls and to see their responses to these traumatic incidents appropriately and respond to them appropriately by really centering healing rather than punishment. Punishment exacerbates trauma. Yes. Yes. Healing is how we respond to trauma. Thank you. Thank you. For <laughs> and that. yet, for, for so most of these girls, I mean, you know, it's really, it's really important to talk about that because what we have failed to do in our rendering of black girls as either invisible or as aggressive, sassy, loud talking girls is strip them of any acknowledgement that they are experiencing these deep multiple oppressions. Mm -hmm. And it's been interesting, you know, just to talk to people in community about the book and about, you know, these ideas. And, you know, the more I talk about this, the more I see women emerge, women emerge <laughs> saying, you know, this was my story. And this is how, you know, I was treated in school. No one saw what was happening to me. No one saw that I had to lash out and had to have a conversation about, you know, how to engage in power dynamics because that was the only way people would see me or that was the way I needed to protect myself, right? Or, and, and we don't interrogate these ideas enough 
and then build out structures and partnerships and responses that can actually respond in a meaningful way. When I ask girls what they need, to feel safe in school, they don't say, I need police. Yes. <laughs> they don't say, not usually anyway, right? <laughs> Some will say that. But, yeah. you know, for the most part, they don't say, I need police. For the most part, they don't say, I need to be expelled. For the most part, they don't say, I needed to be suspended. What they say is, I needed a caring adult. Mm-hmm. I needed a caring teacher. I needed somebody who cared whether or not I was actually doing my work. A lot of the girls that I engaged with were really, really smart, mm-hmm. really gifted. They just didn't know how they could learn. They didn't have a very clear picture about how they would realize their own potential. Mm-hmm. And the they had not been in schools where, yeah, or relationships, right? And mm-hmm. didn't really understand how to develop a positive relationship yeah. with a teacher because they had this relationship or, or the, they had these early childhood traumas and they had these early negative relationships with teachers and they felt like they were just sort of floating and not really engaged and that the teachers didn't like them or that their constructs of family and engagement were not seen. But, you know, these girls were largely dealing with, you know, a lot of issues, including death, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. That was not at all responded to in a way that would acknowledge and provide opportunities for them to heal. Only in, you know, one of the districts that I visited did girls actively, you know, say, you know, let's try restorative approaches, right? Like, let's try. I've been a part of some of these conversations, and while it may not have been my favorite at the moment, now I understand what they were trying to do, right? Like, now I get that I needed to work through some things, and it really boils down to trust, right? Did they trust the adults enough to have those conversations and feel that they could be safe having them? Did they feel like, you know, they could voluntarily participate? in a process that would really address some of their root causes of pain and, you know, not then expose their pain and then walk out vulnerable, right? Like think about how we respond to them and how we create a continuum of services and interventions that can provide the opportunity for healing to the extent that it is necessary in our schools. I want to read this passage from your book about Denisha. And she is, for me at least, the undercurrent throughout the book. Mm -hmm. And I also was just heartbroken uh, reading about your first encounter with her. You're walking into a a juvenile justice facility and uh, you're you're working with girls who usually are 15 to 17 years old, um, but they seem to be getting younger. And this girl stood among her peers when you asked a question or posed a question to the group. And this is what you wrote. I invited her to speak. She nodded and then slid from behind her desk to stand. She adjusted the oversized county sweatshirt covering her petite frame and looked at me. Well, my name is Denisha and I'm 11 years old, she said, and I'm a hoe. That's what I do. Denisha had a baby face. Her dark brown skin was flawless, not yet touched by acne, and her coarse hair was frizzy around the temples, but otherwise neatly pulled back into a small bun. I remember her as a quiet girl who kept staring at the Marcus Garvey t-shirt I was wearing, her eyes examining with interest the words printed on it, School of Liberation. Her apparent interest in my shirt made me curious about her even before her arm shot up to declare how she had come to define herself. And there's just so much in Denisha's story that is um, true for so many girls. And, And you talk about victimization that's unaddressed and that is, in fact, criminalized and that criminalized victimization then really 
becomes internalized oppression for young girls and for people of color, and that that then becomes a generational story. And, you know, you have, of course, here an amen corner of folks who are um, just thrilled at all that you're saying and so appreciative. And I'm just wondering who out there disagrees with you? What have you faced in people who are in opposition to what you put out there? I try not to read the comments. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, smart. When there are, uh, you know, sort of public discussions and Q&As that invite the kind of vitriol that is not useful to this conversation. (laughs) But I think that for the most part, the people who want to argue most are people who are not black girls, mm-hmm. had never been black girls, mm-hmm. and who want to say that it is their fault and the fault of the parents that girls are engaged in disciplinary practices and um, are engaged in uh, underground economies that place them at risk. And I think some of that, you know, I don't argue with in terms of there being a particular vulnerability of girls who are not from stable homes, right? Many of the girls whose narratives I include in the book are girls in foster care and who have had, you know, very problematic relationships with the adults in their lives, parents and otherwise. But I think it's important in this conversation for everyone to recognize that I set out to do something very specific with this project. Mm -hmm. And that was to center the narratives of girls from their point of view in schools. And so while there's a lot that still stands to be interrogated and investigated, and I think that, you know, a more robust research agenda that really engages all of these aspects of, you know, what this grand puzzle is would be very, you know, helpful. Mm -hmm. That what I am doing with this project is, you know, for one of the first times, just giving girls a platform to talk through what they are experiencing and providing some context for what those experiences are. Um, It's a participatory action research project (laughs) that Mm -hmm. was about building on the narratives of girls. And in fact, one of the girls, and and I share this in the book, one of the girls asked me to make sure, she asked me to tell the truth. (laughs) This is what Mm -hmm. she did. She said, what are you going to do with this again? (laughs) And I said, you know, it's part of a research project. And, you know, at the time people were wondering what I would do with the materials. I said, I don't know, maybe I'll write a novel. Maybe I'll, you know, write a nonfiction. And I said, what do you think I should do? And she said, you should just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. And so, you know, when she said that to me, you know, instantly it just hit me in a way that communicated that not only are they feeling like they are not able to tell their truth Mm -hmm. in a way that people receive, but that she trusted me enough to take her story and the stories of others included in the book and communicate them in a way that hopefully the public can begin to deconstruct its own biases mm-hmm. when they are looking at these girls. If they see these girls and understand that they should be seeing girls, mm-hmm. not women, Only. right? Yes, <laughs> like yes, they yes. are girls and that there is a way that we can allow them and we must allow them to grow and, you know, engage childhood and not strip them of this opportunity just because, you know, we feel most comfortable framing their conditions in a way that doesn't place systemic blame on individuals who are not comfortable with that. We're all involved in this. And and I hope that that's clear in this work is that I am saying all of us have played a role 
in creating conditions that are not conducive to the healthy well-being and engagement of black female learners, and that many girls are succeeding despite Mm -hmm. this climate, right, are being resilient in this space rather than fully engaged and encouraged Mm -hmm. to flourish. And that's the structure I want to change. I want us to be invested in providing and creating climates that facilitate and encourage the well-being and critical discussion and, you know, sort of academic rigor of our girls, not one that is, you know, bare bones and just does what it needs to do. And, you know, girls can succeed if they want to, or if they try hard enough, that's not good enough Mm -hmm. for me. All of our children need to be encouraged and engaged. And we still have work to do as the community of caring adults to ensure that that is in place for them. And on that note of moving things out of the way so that Black girls can shine in all of their splendor. What is your Black girl magic story? Who is Monique Morris and and how did you come to write Push Out? You know, I try to say that I am a truth seeker. That's language I probably get from my mother. (laughs) And, you know, I am the eldest of five and raised in a single parent household. And I had my early victimization stories, some of which I include or at least reference in the book, which I think shapes my own understanding of how vulnerable girls are and yet how silent that vulnerability has remained in our justice discourses. You know, I am a mother to two girls and have actively been a part of conversations about Black Girl Magic before we were calling it that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and wanting to really think about how identities intersect and uh, vulnerabilities present in a way that, you know, sort of gives us our space to be creative and responsive. So, you know, I like to think of myself, I, I am an artist and a writer and, you know, sort of all of these things. And I think that my creativity in that space, you know, has really informed my worldview such that it allows for me to really see language as a form of art and uh, how we speak and the rhythms we speak in as, you know, artistic as well. And so what I try to do is find all the various ways to do what I do and to do it with an equity lens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I guess the the magical part of that is really just about understanding that when we lead with love and are constantly in a state of becoming or seeking truth, that we find ways to bring out the beauty in all things and to center that beauty in our approaches. And it's a lot harder to do than, you know, saying it in this discussion with you, right? It's a lot harder to practice than than it is to talk about. But, you know, I think all of those experiences have shaped who I am and, you know, sort of continued to shape who I am becoming. And, And that's kind of how I walk through life. Monique Morris, thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Morris is the founder of the National Black Women's Justice Initiative and the author of the critically acclaimed and highly necessary book, Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. Follow her on Twitter at Monique W. Morris and check out her website at www.moniquewmorris.me. 
Thanks to all of you for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at www.cjsfund.org. Remember, run, don't walk to get your copy of Push Out, the Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. Next week, we will welcome Critical Exposure, an organization in D.C. that works with young people to use photography as an advocacy and organizing tool for change in their schools and communities. Adam Levner is the executive director and co-founder of Critical Exposure, and Brianna is a student member. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week.